just checking the sound. So tonight, each of us is going to give a little bit of um, going home advice, making the transition advice. Uh, and I'm going to start to say a little bit about how you might practice with this next transition, these next hours and and the first days at home. <clears throat> so I imagine that at this point, uh, there might be some anticipation. <laughs> might start showing what's going to happen when I leave retreat. You know, what am I looking forward to? What am I going to do as soon as I leave here? Who am I going to call? Who am I going to talk to? That might be true for some of you, that you're looking forward to, to leaving. And for others, it may be more that you really want to hold on to this experience. You don't want to go home. You want to really stay here and keep practicing. And, and so the thought of coming back into your regular life might be a little bit, um, uh, a lot to take in at this point. So I used to suffer a lot when I would leave retreat, because I really, really, even though there was lots and lots of difficult experiences, I just loved um, the learning experience of being on retreat and the depth of uh, being very authentic with my experience. So when I was leaving retreat, uh, it always felt like... um, yeah, there was just a lot of suffering associated with it because I was trying to hold on to the understandings that had developed, the way of the level of mindfulness and the level of concentration that was developed, and that didn't go so well. <laughs> <laughs> because really, you know, like anything else in, in life, this retreat is like a sandcastle, I hate to say, right? So... <laughs> That's, that's, that's the good news and the bad news is that, you know, we, we cultivate all these conditions and, you know, when we settle down and there's more clarity, more mindfulness, more concentration available to us and we can see things more clearly with these particular retreat conditions. And, this, and then as conditions change, this retreat sand, sandcastle will naturally fall away. Like everything else in life, it is impermanent. Uh, and and it won't last. So um, so the interesting thing is that there's some freedom that can go along with that as well, uh, if we align with impermanence rather than fighting impermanence. So what is it we can take with us from retreat if we can't take uh, particular understandings that we've had or this particular continuous, more continuous mindfulness that we've had or a little bit more stillness that we've developed? What, what is it we can really take with us? And what we, can, what we can take with us is really more a way of being with the truth of reality, the truth of impermanence. Because that's in some ways what we are cultivating, what we're learning here, is how to be present with this moment, and this moment, and this moment, and this moment, and this moment. That's really what we're learning here. And that's the part that we can, uh, that we can take with us from the retreat, and that we can continue practicing through this transition. 
So that's really what I've what I've learned, um, you know, as a gentle way of transitioning out of retreat. It is to continue practicing as that particular sandcastle is falling apart, and being really present with that process, and letting 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 your mindfulness really come into look at this. Now the conditions are changing, you know, and uh, and then the mind is responding in a different way, and some of the old habit patterns might come back again. And can you bring your mindfulness into that particular transition and stay uh, aligned with with that as it's happening? Then, at least that's been my experience. Then we are much better prepared for all the next moments of our lives, and we can bring our practice into that whole process without trying to solidify a sandcastle that cannot be permanent. So, so that's the invitation. Um, so again, these next hours, you may just start to notice, you know, what the mind is doing and the anticipation that's coming up, or then, no, I don't want to go home, I want to sit here and keep practicing and just noticing all of that arising in your mind and and being curious about it and staying present with it as it's happening. And then as you leave the retreat, um, you may want to... Oops, I'm out of time. (laughs) You... (laughs) I still have four minutes. The sandcastle is falling apart too fast. (laughs) Oh, good. Breath. Yeah, as you you leave, as you leave the retreat, um, you know, what, what you can think about is how do I make it a gentle transition if you have some say over the next days after you come home? Like, how do you... You know, how do you make that a gentle transition for yourself? How do you make sure that maybe you have a little bit more alone time? You may have a little bit more time to practice. You know, you may be very gentle with the way that you go back to looking at emails, uh, looking at your phones, and, and just to do that in a gentle, mindful way so that you can actually stay present with the impact of slowly starting to opening up again to your, to your regular life. And then maybe also think about, you know, if you have some say over who, who do you want to spend time with, right? Because, you know, if you want to share some of your experience, you want to make sure that the other person is actually available to hear about it, right? Because sometimes we are so filled up with, with our experience and we want to really share it. And the other person is like, yeah, I didn't need that much information. They can't, they can't really track all the details of everything you've experienced, so... So, you know, be, be mindful with, with who you share with and how much you share so that you can sort of protect your own heart um, as, you, as you re-enter. Um, and then again, I found that um, spending some time in nature is a great way to, to come out of retreat. So going for some long walks, if there's some nature around where you live, you know, that can be very, a very gentle way of of transitioning out. Um, so those are just... So basically, you know, let the sandcastle dissolve as it will, stay present with that 
dissolving and and pay attention to how the mind is you know responding to the to the shifting changing conditions um be gentle with yourself and uh yes and wishing you all really well thank you How's the sound here? Yeah? Great. <clears throat> so there's one, um, there's more than one, but there's one that I'll speak of, part of the practice you've been engaging with these last few days that you uh, can't help but take with you. It's called your body. <laughs> so the transitioning that... Um, Christina is speaking of, it's happening here in the body as well as in the mind. And the body can provide this marvelous support for that, as I think many of you have begun to understand, if maybe you knew it already when you arrived here. The simplicity of feeling your feet on the floor, you know, feeling the steering wheel in your hands, (laughs) Uh, all of it. The speed changes a lot. Yeah. <laughs> there are funny stories about people leaving here and you know getting stopped for driving 15 miles an hour. <laughs> <laughs> so pay attention, you know, and uh, you do want to pick up the pace appropriately, of course. Um, That said, though, there's still plenty of time uh, to pause in the body. Some of the positions we've been working with in the mindful movements, that standing posture especially, I may even have mentioned, uh, I use it in the grocery store all the time. Just like, oh yeah, space under my arms, right? Oh, my feet on the floor. As a way to, I'm going to say, mitigate the... Uh, impacts, yeah, the impingements of all the uh, sensory experiences that occur, at least in my daily life outside of this place, pretty fast. I don't know how fast they are for you. So um, I want to send you on your way tomorrow with a, a heartfelt encouragement to keep your body in mind or keep your mind in your body. <laughs> as much as you can as you emerge into your uh, more normal pace or your daily life, however you want to think of that. Somebody left me a a note asking me to give some guidance on how to practice what we've been practicing in the mindful movement sessions when exercising. And it's really easy um, in some ways. But it may be challenging in others. There's a beautiful, I think, quote from Thich Nhat Hanh that I'll I'll just paraphrase. He said that there are two ways to wash dishes. One is to wash the dishes to get the dishes done. And the other is to wash the dishes just to wash the dishes, just to be there with the soapy water and the, you know, bits of kale or tuna fish, whatever it is, you know, Uh, the yuck of it and the nice of it, all of it, but to be there with it, 
in the body. So you can do that with exercise too, for sure. You can practice mindful jogging and mindful weightlifting. And what it depends on, at least what it has depended on for me, is shifting from the outcome-oriented attitude to the in-this-moment-is-enough kind of attitude. So then it's no longer a self-improvement project. It's an aspect of our lives that we can enjoy, yeah? Here's the thing, though. I really appreciated that person's question because it caused me to look up that quote. And remember for myself, and I'll offer this to all of you, that that doesn't just apply to exercise. It applies to everything, you know? Every moment we live in these bodies, cells are dissolving, you know, oxygen's entering, carbon dioxide is exiting. This flow of change that Christina was mentioning, it is the body. We are the flow of change, not separate from it. So as I was preparing my uh, remarks, an image came into my mind of all of us far away from each other in different parts of the world and different time zones doing different things. And even at not necessarily happening simultaneously, but remembering our bodies in all these different places, you know, remembering the sensation of tingling yeah, in the fingertips and knowing that there are many, many, many others who are also remembering this, yeah? remembering that we're actually alive and that that is fleeting and therefore perhaps worth really giving some kindness and generosity to toward ourselves and others, of course, as well. There was one more piece in that image as it emerged for me that was really clear and strong that I want to share with you as we get ready to part ways tomorrow. It's a little bit hard to name. It was to do with the sense of vulnerability that comes when we are in our bodies. Now we walk upright, the soft organs are in front. In my experience, there's been so much in the, in the city and in the hustle and the bustle and the corporate and the got to get there that has tended toward hardness for the body. Yeah? And in this practice, I have really found something that lends itself to a profound softness, you know, really fluid, uh, vulnerable kind of feeling, which I've actually come to trust far more than that hardness that the world seems to sometimes demand of me. So in this image of all of us all over the world feeling our feet, I had this sense of these very strong, soft human beings. I'm often aware as retreats end that um, each one of us will do so many beautiful actions through our bodies to help others when we leave here. And I'll never know the ones that you do, and you won't know the ones that I do. Uh, 
but somehow for me at least, and it really feels like it's about the body and it's about moving in the body, the way the hands and the heart are connected to each other, and that makes it possible to hold children and, you know, walk dogs and make meals. Um, But somehow all of those actions to me really feel connected, even though, you know, we may never see each other again. Uh, So at any rate, those are some remarks from me as we prepare to separate. And I lastly want to say thank you because it's really a it's just a, a incalculable, in, immeasurable, cannot be spoken about um, the gifts that just your presence here ha- have given uh, all around, all around. Yeah. So I think I, I've finished with a minute to spare. <laughs> Just to add on to what's been shared, um, these retreats are very interesting, but they often are not like our like our, like our life back home, and so that's part of what makes them interesting or incredibly boring. <laughs> but there's a, something that happens when you plug in, and you realize I can't get off the ride, I can't control the ride. So I'm going to not suffer while I'm on this ride. And it's a very specific environment that's made to support um, the settling of your mind, even though many of you would feel it settled, but then it got busy again. I don't know if it had any lasting impact. One of the nice things is you're going to see when you drive away at 15 miles an hour, Uh, but the car behind you is also going 15 miles an hour. <laughs> a, bit, a little flotilla of people. <laughs> is that um, there's something, it, it, it takes a while to get to know what this practice is actually doing. And the analogy I have in my mind is I used to live on the Puget Sound and I could row out on a rowboat on a totally flat, glassy day. And I would come back and the tide had come in, but I never saw it come in. Or I could go out on a, on a choppy day and survive the swells and the waves, but they were no measurement of the tide. And so it takes a while to actually see, like, whatever you're experiencing, the ups and downs, you have not been measuring the tide. And what you'll realize when you drive away here is how much the tide has come in in terms of beautiful qualities. And you might say, I, you're probably not talking about me, you're probably talking about all the other people who sat still. But <laughs> inside here, there are a lot of waves. But I promise you, that's really just been surface waves. It has not been reflective of the, the tide. And so one of the things that's amazing about that is that you're going to take this momentum out into the world, and you're about to have a second retreat but it's graced by the momentum you have here. 
And so going back out into the ordinary world, which has been pretty ordinary in terms of the world has just had another week of itself. Uh, And so when people say, how's the retreat? They're probably just looking for great (laughs) or interesting. And then you'll see they offer you a thimble and you filled it very quickly. And that's the the attention span of most people. (laughs) But you take that momentum maybe home or maybe you are visiting friends, family, or something like that. But you will have, for a a window of time, more presence. And then there are things like it will, because our lives are not like this, it will erode. And in a month or two, your mind will look like how you've used it. So there's no there's no sandcastle you can hold on to when you go. And for many people who've worked this hard and found some gems, that feels heartbreaking that we can't hold on to this. But if this retreat has impact, it's that it might impact the way that you're in the world and that will be, change your whole baseline. So the changes happen and it's, it takes a, a month or two to really measure what the retreat has done. And what. And again, you're about to have a very interesting heightened sense of awareness. One thing that is helpful, because our dominant culture, as you've noticed, is fragmenting attention. It's speeding up the amount of data you have to take in. And there's more slices of the mind that have to do more things at once. And that's our dominant culture really uh, looking, trying to explore what the breaking point looks like to what you can make a fairly hairless great ape uh, run and do cognitive tasks that it was never asked of us evolutionarily to do this modern life. We're really in the high RPMs. So to support yourself, explore what's called monotasking instead of multitasking. And someone said, well, sometimes I'm watching children and eating at the same time. Then you you draw a circle. That's what I'm doing. This is the one thing I'm doing. And I'm doing that with my whole heart. Allow your heart to have whole experiences. And sometimes it gets more complex than it is here for certain. But we can nudge the averages a little bit all day long and every day, and that will change the whole baseline of is your mind running at nearly crazy-making speeds? And so another image I use for myself is uh, this dominant culture wants us to drive at highway speeds even as we're getting ready for bed. (laughs) And there are a lot more of the day that you can do simple tasks at country lane speeds. And you're going to see that. You're going to have momentum to uh, look for yourself that you can be more content with simple activities and therefore you're not sacrificing simple moments for speed or some future project. 
But on our own with this dominant culture, that tends to be what erodes. And there's a learning about that. So this, what I'm pointing towards, the tide that's come in, there have been many, but one of them is this word samadhi, this wholeness of attention. Again, the waves don't speak of the tide. You have much more wholeness of attention, and you'll know that when you, uh, when you drive away tomorrow at uh, 18 miles an hour. <laughs> you'll see, wow, I have wholeness of attention. This, I, I never saw the road that I was driving on, and now I can. And this is amazing. And I can put on music. Like, wow, this is really beautiful. Why was I sacrificing all these simple moments for some desperate, complex future moment? And so your heart will take stock in simple moments. You can support that and cultivate that by orienting to, is there a a slightly slower speed, a lower gear that I could do the same activity? Could I put pauses in the day? If I'm in a busy mode, do I have to then translate that busyness into the next activity? Or could I say that busyness matched what was necessary in that moment, but I'm going to dispel some of that busyness, feel my body, breathe, and then engage in what's next. So you'll be able to do that over the next few days, and it might actually be seductive. that You're like, yeah, I'll never choose to be busy again. This is awesome. (laughs) And then you look at other people, and they really do look like they're on amphetamines. <laughs> the ordinary world. Like the speeds and choices and the way the neck turns. Like, oh my God, your brain its having to do so many different things at once. And this is graceful. But it's momentum that we've worked on here. And if it isn't as supported, it will come down. But it won't come all the way down. And that may be what the last impact of this retreat is is that uh, you might have changed the baseline of what suffering you're willing to tolerate and what your conscious and unconscious choices are. And by your mind's own suffering, it's like, I used to tolerate this before, but I can feel the discontent in these empty, speedy activities. And I have an inclination that if I just breathe for like two minutes, I could downshift and I wouldn't have to perpetuate the same amount of busyness. That actually is very doable. So uh, simplify and support the momentum and learn incredible things uh, on your next retreat, which is the next week of at least having that much momentum. And there's so much to learn in that pass it on to my sister Bonnie. Good evening, Sangha. Can you hear me? I can't believe everybody is like on the minute in the time that they have. (laughs) That's amazing. So I wanted to talk about Sangha and resources that are available to you as you leave the retreat. And we know that in this practice we talk about the three refuges, right? The three refuges. The first refuge is the Buddha and all of his wonderful, incredibly advanced teachings. 
And uh, that represents a person in history, but it also represents our Buddha nature, our ability to reach that same place that he did. And, um, and then the Dharma is the teachings that he provided and all of the wonderful enlightened people since that time that um, explained, you know, in our three wonderful Buddhist traditions, early Buddhism, Theravada, Mahayana, Zen, and uh, Jodoshinshu, and other Mahayana traditions, and our wonderful Vajrayana, Tibetan traditions as well. And those represent, you know, the teachings that were written down, you know, that we can absolutely have access to. But it also represents, the Dhamma also represents kind of like the physics of how things work. It's like, you know, to be able to see clearly that those words, those concepts represent something that you can have a really big insight about. And then Sangha, Sangha, Sangha. And um, I think, you know, those of us who are in the teaching mode, our sangha is pretty deep and constant because, you know, there's a community that we're trying to always figure out where are we going next and who are we teaching and how is that going to be. And um, in our wonderful Theravada early Buddhist tradition here in the United States, our convert Buddhist tradition, there have been some excellent, um, you know, retreat centers that have popped up all over the country, all over Canada. And, um, you know, it would be wonderful if, if you're feeling just how nice it was to be with community here, that that is also, you know, what you're able to access, hopefully someplace not too far away from where you live as well. And... Um, What's that website that has all of the sanghas on it and all of the... I have a one-page handout that has all of my favorite free um, resources that include a website that has all of the mindfulness meditation retreats or Satipatthana retreats actually all over the world. And um, I remember back before I was in a training program to teach... Every year, that's exactly what I did, you know. As soon as that came out, I said, which retreats am I doing this year? And, you know, I put in my application and make sure that I would do that. And it also has, that same website also has a list of all the local sanghas everywhere. And, you know, you definitely want to take a look at that. I've heard from many of you, or some of you, that some sanghas have arisen and fallen away, and um, some of you practice in other traditions as well. I, I know some of you practice in the Vajrayana, the Tibetan tradition, uh, like the Shambhala uh, resources, I think, kind of took a hike for a while, and they may be coming back. But it's de- definitely something that you might want to look into because local sanghas can be a wonderful place to feel safe and to know that people are you know, having the same aim as you two, to be free from greed, hatred, and delusion, and to see the truth of um, not perfect, not permanent, not personal. And I think that those, um, those reflections often can be also very good too. <laughs> not 
perfect, not permanent, not personal. And I also love the reflections, not I, not mine, not self, particularly when you're feeling a lot of selfing come up. Bonnie wants to be this, Bonnie wants to be that, Bonnie doesn't want to be that. You know, just to just let that go and realize, you know, it's an illusion that we are that anyway. <laughs> but um, so definitely, I will put a link to where you can download. I have probably 20 copies of that favorite resources uh, actually on my academia.edu slash Bonnie Duran website. But I will put that up on the board, probably a QR code. When you get your phones tomorrow, you can just look at the QR code and go to that and save it to uh, download. I have a lot of other things also on that website, like I've been talking a lot about that article, that meta-analysis with one T, right? <laughs> that met, you know what I mean. Yeah. <laughs> that meta-analysis that came out in 2021, I was, I, actually I sent it to everybody. You guys probably got a copy of it, right? It was a uh, combination of all of these scientific studies of what was the most impactful for well-being and mental health. You know, they combined uh, many, many hundreds of studies. They had an N of 55,000 people, and they were looking at the outcomes and what the intervention was, and guess what came out on top? This, what we have been doing for the last seven days. And that article is also on that website, too, if you want to show people why you go on retreat. That's why. Because <laughs> I care about my mental health and yours, too. <laughs> I'm doing this for you, don't you know? Because <laughs> I'm a much nicer person when I come home. And I bet you you'll, you'll, your, your family will see that, right? Like, wow, you should do that more often. <laughs> And then I want to say that, you know, I've been lucky enough, and I told this story of, you know, me winking at my par partner on match at the Donna talk today. But, yeah, you should check out the Asian Buddhist churches. They're incredibly welcoming. And I was so lucky that my partner's family are leaders in that Jodo Shinshu tradition. His, uh, you know, one of my great nephews is a minister in the Los Angeles Jodo Shinshu temple, and... You know, all, other of his cousins are chairmen of the board of the temples, and they're wonderful temples. You can go to Buddhist Churches of America, and there is, uh, you know, many, many, you know, they're traditionally Japanese-American um, uh, Mahayana temples, but they are incredibly diverse. Now, they're just not Japanese-American. You know, there's a lot of Latinx, Latino, Latina ministers in the church it's shocking how many there are and it's very very diverse a lot of um you know european americans african americans um there's even i found some indigenous people in there too it's really so beautiful and i think the other asian buddhist churches are absolutely worth um investigating as well i'll just tell you in the oh, i'm out of time when you go to the jodo shinsho church when you're the, it's the first time there, they'll ask you, have you been here before? You'll put your name on a piece of paper. At the end of the service, they'll ask all of the new people to stand up and they'll introduce them. And everyone in the church goes to you and says, thank you for coming. Just please know that you're welcome here. It's so beautiful. I know. <laughs> anyway, Sangha is huge and it's important and it's out there for you. And you are Sangha too. 
Thank you. So Bonnie already shared during the Donna talk her famous pithy teaching on the topic that I'm going to touch on today, which is that Sila is sexy. (laughs) And uh, one of the main things I want to touch on in this time of transition and looking forward to practicing at home is that Sila is also something we can always practice. You know, many people um, find challenges or they kind of intermittently find time to meditate or not to meditate. But sila, this practice of ethics, of non-harming conduct, is something we can always practice. So it's kind of the easiest way to be sexy, right? Because if sila is sexy and it's also easy, it's kind of easy to get there. (laughs) Um, But seriously, because... Sila, oh yeah, we got to get real serious about Sila. We actually don't. It's joy. It is joy. And that's why the Buddha taught it very clearly. Um, Seeing one's own wholesome actions brings joy and delight. That's what he said in the Dhammapada. And um, and so it's a joyful thing to share the teachings on on Sila. It really allows us to have a... Uh, to cultivate and to begin to maintain a, a certain level of tranquility in the heart and the mind because we really come to know to kind of in the background of our hearts and minds that, that our conduct is aligned with our highest intentions for care for ourselves and the world. And, and that creates um, a ground for the practice to really flourish in our lives. I really kind of loved the way Bhikkhu Bodhi put this. I was always reading about it, how ethical conduct is kind of this foundation that allows the rest of the practice to flourish um, because it seems so strong. Like uh, He says, ethical conduct prevents the defilements from erupting in verbal and bodily actions that rattle the mind and cloud the capacity for clear cognition. This helps to weaken the obsessive stage of defilements through the development of concentration and to cut off the latent defilements with the sword of wisdom. With the defilements cut off at the root, the door to Nibbana swings wide open. Okay? But that's where the suttas go to. Starts with the sila, the ethical conduct, boom, to Nibbana. <laughs> so it, bring, it really does, um, exploring sila in your daily life practice um, really can be such a incredibly rich practice, so fruitful. And um, just to remind folks, we'll be taking them again tomorrow, but we haven't taken them since the beginning of the retreat formally. The, there are the five ethical training precepts for lay people, um, and they are uh, first to refrain from harming or killing other living beings, second uh, to refrain from taking that which is not freely offered, the third is to refrain from sexual harm, harm with our sexual energy. The fourth is to refrain from false speech. And the, the final one is to refrain from taking intoxicants that lead to heedlessness. And that fifth one, you know, helps to prevent us from transgressing, kind of harming in the other areas. 
So, so now these are all trainings to refrain from. It's the, they're not taught as a dogma. They are taught for the purpose of us exploring what brings, tri- what brings um, joy to our hearts and our minds in um, really acting non-harm, in a non-harming way in the world. And as you can see, for many people, these are deep explorations, and people are actually going to come out with different interpretations of how, you know, what does it really mean to live in the world without taking that which is not freely offered, right? Um, many people could, you know, it, it calls on some people to really explore, like, what kind of products they're using. Uh, where are they coming from? Are they coming from sources where people are, you know, that labor is is either not sufficiently compensated or not compensated at all? Those kinds of things just, it's, they're just, these are just areas for rich exploration. And I have to say that I really, cre- like, credit... Um, really having a daily practice of taking these precepts every morning when I sat as being the one of the greatest fuels in, for my practice, in the, especially in the early years. I happened to spend a little bit of time in a different tradition. And in that tradition, we took the precepts in Pali every time before we sat, and I started doing it for myself every time before I sat in the morning. And during those times, I really did not, you know, not to take it as a dogma really helps because I would notice many times where I would slightly maybe maybe I would exaggerate instead of really telling the t- truth because like I said exaggerate for effect you can see like the craving for becoming in that sometimes wanting to seem like something else or for, just as an example I would see where the mind had the in the previous 24 hours I would just kind of gone astray and and ex- it allowed me in, in just brief little times as I took the precepts to kind of question why and was it worth it did it bring a little turmoil to my heart and mind? Obviously, it kind of did because I remembered, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so these are just some ways to practice. You can explore wise speech. There's a lot of community offerings around these practices of sila um, and particularly wise speech. You can do that. Uh, somewhat early in my practice, I did a whole wise speech retreat. Um, sometimes those are offered, not completely silent retreats, but where you're exploring the practice of wise speech. Which is much actually deeper in the in the Buddhist teachings. He had a tremendous amount to say about wise speech, which is actually something that gave me a lot of confidence early on in the teachings, knowing that the Buddha put so much emphasis on the, our importance of relating to speech in a non-harming way, because we can see so clearly how much harm is done. And I really wanted to. I needed to clean up my speech. I used to have a really hard edge. <laughs> And um, and it brought a lot more peace to my mind when when I did explore that. But there's also beyond the five training precepts, the the Buddhist teachings also include um, a more expanded list in terms of non-harming conduct in terms of seal in there. The ten wholesome actions, and they include more kind of guidelines around wise speech. So I'm gonna some of them are repetitive from the five precepts, but I'm just gonna read through the ten wholesome actions. Uh, The first is abstaining from killing living beings. Second, abstaining from taking that which is not freely offered. The third, abstaining from sexual misconduct. The fourth, abstaining from false speech. Fifth, abstaining from divisive speech. So speech that divides people from one another. The sixth is abstaining from harsh speech, that which is harmful in its tone, perhaps. The seventh is abstaining from idle speech. And I love this one because the Pali word is like, sounds what it means like. It's like the Pali word for idle speech is sampapalapa. <laughs> <laughs> so don't sampapalapa. 
<laughs> abstaining from covetousness, wanting okay. what others have, abstaining from ill will, and abstaining from unwise view, from wrong view. So um, having unwise view, actually. So actually taking things to be permanent, that are impermanent, taking things personally. This is actually considered to be unwise view. Why? Because it causes turmoil in our own hearts and minds, and we might act out a little bit um, in a harming way. So all of these, though, in the Buddha gave so many teachings on non-harming conduct, and one beautiful one was where he just gave the general guide Check out what you're doing before you're, you, if you intend to do something, check out if it's going to harm, uh, it's going to cause affliction to you or someone else, others. And if, you, if it will, don't do it. In the middle of taking an action, if you notice that it's causing you harm or someone else, stop doing it. Afterwards, if you realize you've done something that was harming to yourself or others, you can actually, he actually advises to share that with a teacher or a spiritual friend. Um, and just simply resolve not to do it again. So not getting caught up in taking that process per- personally of making the mistake, of having done something that would be afflictive, not creating a, a self out of it, um, not engaging in self-judgment or, or those kinds of things, but just taking that resolve to notice and to resolve not to do it again. Um, and so in that patient, gentle way, we bring that gentle, persevering practice to Sila also. And um, just encourage you to connect with this. It, it, it really is a joyful practice. And the Buddha also had in this incredible way, he, he talked about the impact it can have on others in a really expansive way. Because he has, a, there's this vast sense of the conditionality and the connectedness of all beings that's reflected in the Dharma often and there's a real sense that you know we live within a web of conditions and everything that's arising in every moment is caused by this the coming together of many conditions Um, so too our non-harming conduct can have tremendous impact over time we can't know we can't measure it but what the buddha said is is actually that just a, a person just following the five precepts gives to an immeasurable number of beings freedom from fear enmity and affliction the person in turn enjoys immeasurable freedom from fear, enmity, and infliction. This is a great gift, primal of long standing, traditional, ancient, unadulterated. So we can really um, have impacts that ripple out over time through generations, perhaps. You don't know. If we just engage with every moment more and more um, with that uh, sense of non harming intention. Okay, thank you again for your attention, and we'll see you uh, for the chanting in a little bit, Um, and also in the morning for closing. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash
donate.